Good morning. My name is Howard Fort, and I'm on the Elder Council here at FBC, and we're going to be reading from Luke 7, 41 through 50. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled their debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thanks, Howard. Good morning. This morning we are going to be in Luke uh, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. If you want to turn your copy of Scripture uh, there to follow along, and let's begin our time in prayer and ask God for His help as we take a look at His Word this morning. God, we thank You for this time we get to come together and think about the work of Christ to save sinners, especially in this passage this morning as we consider this dinner where this woman expressed profound worship of Christ. We would pray this morning, God, your Holy Spirit would, would do work on our hearts, that we would be open to the places where we need to repent and turn to you and trust you. And God, we would also pray that you would encourage us in those places where we need to be lifted up. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The question we want to answer in looking at this brief occasion in Luke chapter 7 is this, what is God's love like? What is God's love like? We're going to get to sort of be a silent observer at a dinner party, and in observing the interactions between Jesus and this religious leader, Simon, and a woman, we can see what God, God's love is like. And we're going to contrast the views of God's love between Simon the Pharisee and Jesus and this woman. Interestingly, as we work our way through this little dinner party, we'll discover the woman says nothing through the entire occasion. She has no words recorded here. It's not that she couldn't speak, just none of her words are recorded here. The conversation is between Simon the Pharisee and Jesus, and yet, nonetheless, we learn quite a bit from God's work in the life of this woman. What is God's love like? There was a character in a book called The Return of the King. His name is Faramir. His father was steward of Gondor, so he wasn't king. He was sort of in charge of the throne. 
Uh, his dad wasn't king. When the king returned, the king would need to take charge, but up to this point, the king hadn't returned yet, and so Faramir's dad is steward of the throne. Faramir had an older brother, Boromir, and his dad made no secret that Boromir was everything a father could ever dream of in a son. He was brave. He was a warrior. He was a leader. He was amazing. He was a fantastic son. Unfortunately, though, for this father, he was bereaved because Boromir had died in battle, and he was left with Faramir. Even in Faramir made this observation to his father one day. He said, you would have wished that I were dead and Boromir were alive, and the dad agreed heartily. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of rough. It's a made-up story. Calm down. It's just it's Lord of the Rings. It didn't really happen. This group up here, yes, it did. It's real. Okay, sorry. Don't mean to point you out, Jason. He's quoting the lines with me. Yeah. So then one day, uh, uh, Faramir is sent into battle by his father. They have lost a city, and the father sends Faramir into battle, knowing this is a suicide mission. In fact, part of the intention is to kill Faramir in this battle. And Faramir turns to his father as he accepts this mission to retake the city, and he says to his father, if I should return, think better of me, father. And his father's stern reply is, that will depend on the manner of your return. If you return a victor, I will think more favorably of you. If you return a failure, don't anticipate any change in my mood. Here's the thing we need to recognize. This is what we think God is like. God, I need your love for me. We presume upon God that he is standing in heaven looking down a long religious nose for some reason saying, I will love you, love you depending on the manner of your service to me. Should you earn my favor, my favorable will be readily granted. Should you not earn my favor, then you can expect an ongoing grumpiness from God. That's a theological term. What is God's love like? The first section of this scripture that we're going to look at, verses 36 through 40, we're going to learn Simon's perspective on what God's love is like, and this is what Simon's perspective is. What is God's love like? God loves those who don't need forgiveness. God loves those who don't need forgiveness, or maybe he would qualify that. God loves those who don't need much of God's forgiveness, and what little forgiveness they require is for really, really not big deal kinds of sins, the kinds of things you could do in public and not be embarrassed about. What is God's love? God's love is, what is God's love like, I should say? God's love is for those who don't need forgiveness. Simon's perspective on God's love is a common one. In fact, I would say this boldly. Simon's perspective on God's love is the most popular view of God's love, not just for today. Simon's view of God's love, that God loves those who don't need his forgiveness, has been the dominant view of God since the beginning of time throughout all of history. God's love is earned by earning his favor, by figuring out what he wants you to do and not to do. That is the predominant view of God throughout all of human history, and that's Simon's view of God. And Jesus is going to call him into correction 
on that. What's going on here? Look at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, him, of course, Jesus, to eat with him. So Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. This Pharisee, Simon, invited Jesus over for dinner. He didn't invite him over for any ill intent. Throughout the Gospels, which we're reading through there, there are times when Pharisees and scribes and lawyers will ask Jesus questions to try and trap him, to try and get him caught up in his words. This isn't one of those occasions. Simon the Pharisee is inviting him over. It appears to be to have a conversation like he would do with any other religious rabbi, and he wants to discuss his viewpoints on God and the Old Testament, these sorts of things. These sort of events are formal affairs. They're reclining at a table. It means it was a fancy dinner. They didn't always recline at a table. When, you got up in, when they got up in the morning and poured their bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios, they didn't recline at their table. They would sit at a table like any of us would. But at a formal affair, you might have a reclining table, the formal dining room, so to speak. And in this kind of an occasion, it would be open to the public. It would be a, an occasion where people could come in and gather around, watch the meal occur, and listen in on the conversation of the religious leaders. And this was the intention for them to be able to learn something as the rabbis had a conversation about various topics. So really, Simon here is inviting Jesus over like you might any other rabbi. The public would be allowed to come in and listen to their conversation about whatever religious matters were going on. And so Jesus agrees to go to the house of Simon and is reclining at the table. But something strange happens, and we must understand that this thing that's going on is as strange in that day as it would be today. So it isn't less strange what happens. What we discover, verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner, stop there, we don't know what kind of sinner, but whatever kind, it was enough that she had a reputation as a sinner. But we're not told exactly uh, what it was, but she had a reputation for whatever reason. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment standing behind him, that is Jesus. She began to uh, weep, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. So she was crying to such an extent that the tears were falling off of her face onto Jesus' feet. His feet would have been pointed towards the wall where the gallery was sort of gathered. She's sitting at Jesus' feet, weeping to such an extent that her tears are, are falling on his uh, feet. She's then taking her hair and, and wiping his feet off while at the same time anointing his feet with this ointment, this fresh-smelling alabaster ointment. I mean, that would be a strange occurrence at any dinner party, wouldn't it? But I don't know what kind of dinner party you go to, but, and maybe you said, no, I call that Thursday. I mean, I would find that strange. They would find it strange. The other thing about this that's important to understand, this wasn't like a 30-second a break in the action where she couldn't compose herself and suddenly uh, she was moved to weeping. And this was an ongoing thing. They're having conversation and eating their food. And this entire time, there's a woman at Jesus' feet wiping his feet with her hair while she cries on them. And you could imagine the difficulty, everybody casting sort of glances over, and you're trying not to look, and you're like, what in the world is going on down there? 
Simon, though, in verse 39, reveals his view of this. I want you to think just a minute about what you think of this woman wiping Jesus' hair with his feet. With... <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> May as well dismiss at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> What would you think if you're sitting there? But I want you to think about this because it's really important. First of all, why is this woman doing this? What do we call this what she is doing? It's, it's worship. It's worship. What she's doing is not intended to be provocative or illicit. Although were it done to anyone else, it likely would be. What she's doing is not intended to be uh, illicit or controversial or provocative. She is seeking to communicate what she thinks of Jesus, and what she thinks of Jesus is that he is God, and that he has forgiven her, and she is so moved by this forgiveness that has brought her to tears and wants to in some way express how moved she is by God. And it's one of those things where on the one hand we say, well, that's, that's beautiful, on the other hand, there's a bit of us, isn't there, that sort of says, you know what, worship is good, but at a certain point, it becomes inappropriate. Yeah, at a certain point. Now, let me push it just a little bit farther. Shouldn't there have been a certain point where Jesus says, you know, it's good, we're, we're square. Shouldn't, shouldn't there have been a, a, there is no indication anywhere in this passage that Jesus ever tells her, to stop, except at the very end, after the parable's over, he says, you are forgiven, affirming that. Why doesn't Jesus at some point say, okay, no, we're good, you're fine, because we, we appreciate that. If, if somebody does something really amazing, uh, a sports star or a, a musician, they do something really amazing, we sort of expect that people acknowledge that what they did was fantastic, but what we also honor is when people are self-deprecating where a, 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 an athlete maybe wins the game, and, and we want to hear him say, it was my teammates, really, who made the biggest contribution. We, we, we appreciate and understand that, that self-deprecation that says, okay, no, we all understand something great happened, and I happened to do it, but you know what? At the end of the day, we're all just people, and that's what we want to see. Jesus never does that. Why doesn't Jesus sort of tamp down this woman's expression of worship. Here's what we need to understand. So I want you to think about it a little bit. Because Jesus is God, and he knows the best thing for people is to worship. That the best thing for that woman is to worship God. Why in the world would he ask her to stop doing the one thing that is the best thing for her to do. What was she made to do? Worship God. That's what God made us to do, to have relationship with him where we engage with him through worshipful activity. Now, in the Garden of Eden, we messed that all up. God puts us on planet Earth, puts us in charge, and says, put this thing in order. I've made it. You make it better. And we were in that moment had the joy of worshiping God by working hard with our hands to engage with his creation. And then we all said, now Adam did it for us, but we would have agreed had we been there, do you know what would be great is to engage with this creation without 
having to mess with this God thing. Because what bothers us is that we would have someone who thinks they should be worshipped. Can you believe God thinks he should be worshipped? Now, I know it's in church, and you're going to say, oh, of course you worship God. What if anybody else on planet Earth asks you to worship them? What if, what if a, a political leader or a religious leader or a sports star asked you to worship them? Wouldn't you th- think that a, is a bit presumptive? Yes, because they're not God. Jesus is God. And he knows the best place for this woman to be is worshiping God. He's not going to stop her from doing that. In fact, to stop her from doing that would be offensive because that's the best thing for her. Simon reveals his view, though, of God in verse 39. He doesn't say this out loud because he's a good dinner host. He says it to himself. Failing to understand Jesus is God, he doesn't understand saying something to himself is the same as saying it out loud. The Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this going on, and he says this, revealing his theology, revealing his understanding of God's love. Here's what he says. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for he is a sinner. All right, let's do the theological math here. He's trying to figure out if Jesus is a prophet or not. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he's being objective and just wants to determine if Jesus is a prophet or not. So, if Jesus were a prophet, he assumes, he would therefore know what kind of woman this is, meaning he would recognize that she is a sinner, meaning a sinner of some ill repute that people know she's a sinner. Not just merely a sinner, as everybody, oh, we've all done something wrong. No, she's a sinner like whispered voices when she walks by down the sidewalk kind of thing. And he would say, if she's a prophet, if, or Jesus is a prophet, he should know what kind of sinner she is. Secondly, if he, if he is a prophet of God, he would never let a woman like this touch him. Why? Because God... God would never let a woman like this touch him. And a prophet is supposed to act like the God he works for. And if this prophet were a prophet of God, he would know there needs to be a reasonable amount of distance between him and this sinner. Because there needs to be a reasonable amount of distance between God and sinners. Why would the Pharisee think that? Because in the temple, there's a giant curtain that has been telling that him that his entire life. God needs separation from sinners. Here we have a prophet with a sinner. There should be a separation. And weeping and wiping with hair is not separation. That's, in fact, a level of closeness that's making everybody uncomfortable. So Simon reveals what he believes about God's love. God's love is not for this woman. Because this prophet should not have this kind of closeness with this woman because God would never have closeness with a person like this. Jesus responds to Simon, and we'll get to the parable in a minute. Jesus answered uh, uh, Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answers, go ahead, something like that. What do you got? Let's pause there. Jesus is going to rebuke Simon through this parable because he needs Simon to understand that he is misunderstanding God's love. So this is a rebuke of Simon's misunderstanding of how God's love works. 
His response here, when he says, say it, teacher, is a a way of responding to Jesus that is uh, palpably tense. Simon is thinking his heart, how can he let this sinful woman touch him as a prophet? Jesus responds to him verbally, and his response is short, not impolite, but clearly communicating, there's a problem right now, and I hope you're going to fix it pretty soon. But Jesus is going to communicate that Simon is the one that needs to learn about God, because the woman is engaging in worship, and Simon is engaging in rebellion. Why is Simon bothered? Two reasons why Simon is bothered, then we'll look closely at the parable. Number one, he doesn't see Jesus as God. That's one reason he's bothered. He he sees Jesus as merely a prophet. He doesn't recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, this isn't terrible. Most people who interacted with Jesus, it took them some time to learn and understand who he was and what he was up to. It's still a couple of chapters from now before Peter's going to finally acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. So this isn't a big deal. He understands he's a prophet, but Simon cannot recognize that Jesus could possibly be God in the flesh. Number one, he didn't have a category for that. Number two, if God were here in the flesh, he wouldn't let a woman do this to his feet. And so he said, no, 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 this can't be. So one reason Simon is bothered, he doesn't see Jesus as God. Second reason Simon is bothered, he sees himself as better than the woman. He's trying to have a conversation with Jesus. This woman is having more interesting interaction with Jesus than Simon is. This woman is closer to Jesus in this moment than Simon is, and Simon can't figure out how is Jesus interacting in such a close way with this woman I'm the religious person here. I'm the important one here. If he's a prophet of God, his attention should be focused on me, the one who, I, who invited him over for dinner. Jesus should recognize my standing as a religious leader, as someone who understands the word of God and has, has considered uh, significant effort into having my life look the way I think God expects it to look. So here's Jesus, a prophet of God, paying attention to this woman and not paying attention to me, the good religious person. What is God's love like? According to Simon, God loves those who don't need forgiveness. So God shouldn't love this woman, and God should pay particular attention to him as a religious person. And if Jesus were a prophet of the God he knew, Jesus should shun this woman and be fawning over Simon. That's his understanding of how God's love should work. I might say it this way before we move on. When we live like we need to earn God's love, we will expect others to earn God's love too. So when we live like we need to earn God's love, that will affect how we view other people, which is happening here. Simon doesn't merely want to earn God's love. He wants those who have not earned it as well as him to be shunned. That's what he wants. We want others, when we, see, when we live like we have to earn God's love, other people have to earn God's love too, and other people should know their place if they haven't earned as much love as we have. They should recognize they're not as good as us. That's, that's Simon's perspective on God's love. Now, do you, I don't know if you ever feel this way. Of course, you're going to deny it. Let me challenge you. I, 
I asked another group, I think it was Wednesday night we asked this question and it bothered all of us, myself included. So, having bothered some, let's go for more. Do you know anybody in your life who is a lousy Christian? Don't look at them. I mean, they're in the room. You're looking at me. What? Know somebody in your life. They're just not good at it. You don't even know if they're trying, right? And man, everything goes great for them. You know who I'm talking about? I mean, they are really bad at being a Christian, as far as how you might measure it, I guess. And everything goes great for them. Their business goes well, their kids do great in school, their car never breaks down, their dog doesn't have to be trained, it just always obeys. When they walk down the street in the rain, it doesn't rain on them. And it drives you bonkers. Maybe you even pray about it, say, Lord, I mean, I'm doing all my stuff, I get up and read my Bible for two minutes a day, and... I'm kidding, you know, whatever it is in your head. I, I don't go to any of those bad movies, and I hang out with Christians most of the time. And, and this guy, look at him, and everything's going his way. And the problem, is, what's happening there is we're saying, listen, I'm just going to wait for the blinds to close. <laughs> You're all watching it. It's pretty exciting. I mean, they go down. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. I appreciate it. It wasn't Sunday when it started. So what, what happens is we say, I have worked hard in my life to earn God's favor. And number one problem is, I'm not feeling favored. That, so that's one of the problems. I'm not feeling favored. Secondly, this Yahoo isn't doing anything. And they appear to be favored. So our view of God's love messes up. Number one, how we interact with God. We feel like he's holding out on us. Number two, he's not fair. Because how could somebody who doesn't love God as much as us have so much good going for them? That's what's happening in Simon's life. He's standing there or reclining there having, having dinner with Jesus, and it bothers him that this sinner could possibly have a closer relationship with God than he does. It bothers him so much, he decides the only answer is what? This ain't God, and he doesn't work for God, because I know God, and he doesn't work that way. I know how God works. You earn his favor. And if you don't earn his favor, I'm better than you. And it drives him nuts. We need to recognize, though, that that shows up in our heart, too. What is God's love like? Simon gets it wrong. He believes God loves those who don't need forgiveness. Let's look at Jesus' perspective as he tells his parable. What is God's love like? I want to look at a passage in the Older Testament, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. A little bit of background on Hosea. Hosea also was a prophet. <clears throat> he was called by God to communicate the love of God to the people of Israel. And the way in which he was to do that was he was to marry someone who was unfaithful to him. Her name was Gomer. He married her. They had children, and Gomer was unfaithful to him. God then tells Hosea as an expression and an illustration of God's love for the people of Israel to then also go after Gomer had abandoned him to go and reclaim her and redeem her by purchasing her from the place where she had sold herself into slavery to redeem her and have her come home and marry her again. And have her as his, his wife. 
And God had Hosea do this to illustrate what it was like for God to love Israel, which is offensive, but that was the point. So we need to understand from this a little bit about what God's love is like because it tells us how Jesus, being God, thinks of his love. So this is Hosea 2, 14 through 20. I'm going to read the whole section. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. This is God talking about his people Israel. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor is where Achan and his family were killed and it was the area of ruined desert. Just to give some background, the valley of Achor is not a door of hope. It's a place of judgment. God says, I'm going to reverse your fortunes. The valley of Achor is a door of hope. And there, shall, there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. A couple of things about what God is saying to his people Israel here in their rampant disobedience and throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel worshiping other gods, God called that adultery, that kind of unfaithfulness. And what God is saying here is he, like his prophet Hosea, is going to take the initiative to restore his people to himself and he's going to do so by alluring these people through an expression of his love. It's, it's pictured as a ruined marriage where the people of Israel have been unfaithful to God, and God is going to try and win back her affections. Not merely drag her back kicking and screaming. God wants to go to his people and win back her affections that she would come back to him in loving faithfulness. The one who has been wronged is the one who reaches out with the initiative to express his love to the people who wronged him. That's what God's love is like. That's according to your Old Testament in Hosea. That's what God's love is like. It takes initiative to try and woo back those who have rebelled against him. So Jesus' view of God's love being God was unexpected to Simon, although it shouldn't have been. God takes the initiative to love people who need forgiveness. That's what he does. God takes the initiative to express love to people who need forgiveness in order to draw them in to trust him and receive his grace. And then they worship him as a response to his forgiveness in love and affection. And that's exactly what you see in this woman at the dinner party. Go back to Luke chapter 7, verse 41 Howard read the parable for us. There was a certain money lender. He had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. 
when they could not pay, what did they do? According to the parable. What did the debtors do? Nothing. They just didn't write a check. They could have wrote a check, but it bounced. So back to understanding God's love here. Who takes the initiative in the parable? The owner, the one who has the debt, takes the initiative. The two people owe the debt, at least in the parable, they do nothing. They can't do anything. One uh, writer has put it this way. The only thing we bring to our salvation is what? Our sin. That's it. That's the only thing you bring to the party is your sin. So here you have two debtors, even in the case of this debt, the one who takes to the initiative is the money lender. They can't pay the debt, and so he just cancels the debt. Both people are in the same position, owing money they cannot repay. The amount is meaningless. They're both in the same spot. Both of them are broke. If you got zero, does it matter if you owe 500 or 50? No, you, you just got, you're just broke. The, the money lender takes the initiative and cancels the debt. Jesus asks Simon the question, Simon, uh, which one of them would love the money lender more? And Simon answers a little bit sheepishly. Uh, what we say in theological terms, this is the Captain Obvious question of the day. Who would love him more? And he answers very sort of sarcastically, I suppose the one who had the larger debt. He knew he didn't have a response that would make any other sense, but he knew he was playing right into Jesus' theological uh, hands. He sort of qualified, well, I suppose the larger debt would be more grateful. I don't understand what the point is. The parable is very simple to understand. Even a religious person can get it. It's universally true. Gratitude and love tend to be commensurate with that which has won the love. So if you give somebody a, a $5 gift card to a business that's out of business, their love will be, well, you thought of me, I guess. You give that same person a car, they may get really excited. Because the, what they have received has some impact because it communicates something about the love that's being expressed. And so it's, it's a really simple parable. Somebody who's received a lot from somebody will be moved to a greater degree than somebody who has received very little. So here we can contrast Simon and the woman. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Look at uh, verse 44. Look at this woman. Now she's the center of attention. When I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. Now, it, he wouldn't necessarily had to have done it. It wasn't necessarily terribly impolite that he hadn't. It might be customary, though, for a servant to be there to at least allow people to use a basin to clean their feet. He said, you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. So now we learn an additional detail about Jesus' feet. What is that? They were dirty. So she was weeping and crying and cleaning, not clean feet. And if you think Jesus walked throughout uh, Judea and his feet didn't get dust on them, and in a warm day and dusty day, his feet didn't sweat, well, they did. So, Simon, you didn't give me any water. She's been cleaning my, my dirty feet with her tears in her hair. You gave me no kiss. 
That would be sort of customary when somebody comes in to greet. If he didn't give him a kiss, it wouldn't be seen as an offense. There might have been a lot of people coming in at one time. But that would be a customary way to extend hospitality, especially to an honored guest. Jesus says, you extended no kiss to me, yet she has not stopped kissing my feet the entire time. So he's contrasting Simon with this woman who is expressing more love. The woman is expressing more love. Finally, verse 46, you didn't anoint my head with oil. That might be a normal thing to do, coming in from the heat and sweating, and your hair is kind of getting out of control, a little bit of oil to, to refresh, and especially if your skin is dry from the blowing wind, it, it allows some moisturizing. That would be a nice thing that somebody would do. And, and Simon didn't extend that courtesy to Jesus. However, this woman has anointed my feet with this very expensive oil. Simon wasn't necessarily rude, but what Simon was, the woman was better. All Simon had done is invite Jesus over to have a conversation. The woman worshipped. Because, because Simon, in the parable, would be the one who owed very little, if anything. He would have seen himself as needing very little forgiveness, whereas the woman understood she needed lots of forgiveness. So that means in the parable, Simon is the one who owes very little, the woman is the one who owns very much, and who is the money lender? Jesus. He is now making a very clear claim, I am God, because I am the one you owe something to. This woman understands her debt, and having interacted with God and realized her debt is canceled, she is moved by the enormity of what God has done, that he has reached out and took it, taken the initiative to extend forgiveness even to her. The moneylender initiates, and Jesus does the same thing to the woman. Look at verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. We have to understand this. Her sins were already forgiven. He's confirming this with her. Her sins were forgiven because she trusted Jesus, and that's why she's worshiping him. It's very, very important to understand. Her sins weren't forgiven because she cleaned his feet. She cleaned his feet because her sins were forgiven. Now Jesus wants to affirm that with her. What you thought of God was exactly right. God loves sinners. Those who were sitting around were stunned that Jesus would say her sins were forgiven. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. You can go. You can go in peace. You are for, you're a forgiven sinner. She loved God. She trusted God. She worshiped God at his feet. And Jesus assured her that she had experienced Forgiving. So here's what we have to understand from Jesus, his viewpoint of God's love. Those who need forgiveness love God because God takes the initiative to present forgiveness to them. So God is the one who initiates, who draws us in through his grace and kindness. And sinners who experience that forgiveness by faith then express love and worship back to God because why would he do such a crazy thing as forgive people like us? We have to understand this about the parable. He talks about two debtors, one who owes very little and one who owes a lot. What we have to understand, this isn't their actual debt, it's how they perceive their debt because everybody is dead in their trespasses and sins. The difference is how a person sees their debt. And this woman understood her sin killed her, separated from God, and she couldn't believe that God would reach out to her. The religious leader, Simon, 
couldn't believe that God wasn't impressed with him. And as a result, he was disliking God. In fact, he rejects God, and he rejects those who would seek God's forgiveness. Who is this that forgives, the people say? That's blasphemy. Is it blasphemy for Jesus to forgive sins? Only if he's not God. Being God, it isn't blasphemy. In fact, that's totally what he's into. What does Jesus do on the weekends for fun? He forgives sins. The religious part of us wants God to recognize how good we are. And that's what Simon wanted. What is God's love like? He's not going to recognize how good we are. Because we're not. But when we recognize that we're not good, then we realize we have a God who has taken the initiative to draw us into himself by his grace. Those who need forgiveness love God. A couple of ideas and then we're going to wrap up. In the parable, there's two kinds of debtors, one who owns a large debt and one who owns a small debt. And the question is, what kinds of sinners are there? And I just mentioned this, but just uh, by way of reminder, there's only large debt sinners. There's just how different people view their debt. So some of us say, well, I only did this, I didn't do that. Or I only did it once, and they do it all the time. And so therefore, I think they're worse than me. But the Bible makes it quite clear, there are none who pursue God. All are dead in their trespasses and sins. So the perception of our sin is really, really important. Jesus is trying to communicate a couple of things to us. One, he loves sinners. But secondly, he's trying to remind us we're sinners. In fact, I would say it this way. Those who perceive their debt or sin inaccurately, meaning they see it not as bad as it really is, love God less. I'll let you stew on that for a little bit because I know you're arguing with me. To the degree you see yourself as not as bad as others or as not as bad as you could be is the degree you don't love God. What Jesus is saying is a principle, but it's also always true. The degree to which we recognize how much we need forgiveness is how much we love God. If you find that it's a difficulty to know and understand God or love God, one of the obstacles is you don't think you're as bad as you really are. I don't want you to stew in your oats and just sit there, woe is me. That's not the point. The point is, let's just be honest. Our hearts are bound up with rebellion. And Jesus, by his kindness, is reaching out to us and saying, I I forgive sinners. And all I want you to do is, as an act of worship, Love me back. Small debt people. Maybe uh, you know people like this. I'll say it that way. Maybe you know people like this. Small debt people. Religious people. Uh, No, no religious people here. I'm trying to be polite. How do we identify when we kind of see ourselves as, I don't owe as much as others? Here's one way to do that. When we really want God to recognize how good we are. When, when we really think God uh, ought to recognize what I'm up to, that I'm a good guy, I, that I don't make the mistakes other people make, that I'm really disciplined, and I've got all the habits that I was told you're supposed to do. When we, when we feel like God is shorting us, that I've done the right things and God is holding out on me, 
that's a way that I can diagnose my own heart that for some reason I've decided my sin isn't that bad and, and God owes me something. And that's just a place to what, do what Simon ought to have done. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm arrogant. And I think I'm something special. And I need to have my, my mind and my heart changed to, to be humbled to recognize I need your forgiveness as much as anybody else. Small dead people not only want God to recognize their goodness, they want others to see how bad they are. There's nothing more delightful for a religious person than to stand next to a sinner and have them feel bad about themselves. Because that makes them feel like, all right, I'm okay. I'm good because I'm better than this so-and-so. As satisfying as that that may be to feel, doing so misses out on God's love, and it can wreck others. Okay, last thing, I just have this question. This is something I ask myself all the time, but I'll share it with you. Uh, Have you ever noticed uh, an effort in your life to try and get God's attention? You ever done that? You got something you you need God to pay attention to, and you're trying to get uh, God's attention? I don't know how you do that, you know, fireworks or something, but here's what we learn about God's love according to Jesus and according to Hosea. He's been trying to get ours longer. As much as we might be trying to get God's attention in a particular place in our life, there's nothing wrong with that. And the Psalms are full of that. So keep doing that. But we need to understand, he has been pursuing us longer than the five minutes we've been pursuing him. He's been trying to get our attention first. Now, understand, he's not desperate. He's not like a guy who can't get a date. He's calling everybody he knows. He's not desperate. He's just that loving He's been pursuing us and not merely pursuing us with whips and, and, and trying to lock us in and, and browbeat us until we finally submitting, submit to him. The Bible tells us he's by, been pursuing us by wooing us with the expression of his love. The greatest expression of that love is Jesus on the cross. And that's what the Bible says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That tells us exactly the trajectory. While we're running away from him, God is trying to pursue us and convince us, no, come back. I will receive you and I will show you forgiveness. God has been pursuing us even longer. What I would pray is that God's initiative and expression of love in our own hearts would move us to love God freely to recognize how much he's done for us and so we could show a love for God like we haven't done before? Maybe I'll say it this way. Maybe I will. I guess I'm going to say it this way, whether or not I should. At some point, if a recognition of God's forgiveness in our life couldn't be aptly expressed by wiping his feet with our hair, then that, that just means we need some more work done on our heart. That we need something to reveal, that his spirit needs to reveal how much he's done for us. When our love expressed to him is measured and appropriate, that, that's sort of an indicator that maybe we haven't really grappled with the reality of what we've been forgiven of. Because everything about this woman's expression of love is not measured. And in some ways it is inappropriate. But that's the point. She understood how much she was forgiven 
of. Not only that, but when we recognize how much God has forgiven us, it completely changes how we see others. If I've had God take the initiative to cancel my massive debt, what am I going to do? Why would I ever stand in judgment over somebody else? It completely changes how we relate to the people around us. What is God's love like? Religious people like Simon say God loves those who don't really need his forgiveness. And Jesus recognizes this in this woman. Those who need forgiveness love God because he went first. God, we thank you for the love of Jesus expressed to us most powerfully with his sacrifice on the cross. God, we are grateful that you took the initiative to seek us out. Because you know full well that we never would have. For those of us who are here who have trusted you for forgiveness, we have to recognize, God, that you are the one who took the first step. It wasn't us. God, I would also pray that your Holy Spirit would impress on our hearts that that no matter how profoundly we recognize our need for forgiveness, we still understate it quite a bit. I would pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would give us such a great understanding of the debt that has been canceled on our behalf that we would be moved to worship you with love, that we would be moved to worship you with devotion and faithfulness. God, I would pray for those of us who are here that are caught up in an understanding of your love that has to be earned I would pray, God, that your word would speak into our hearts, that we would let go of that need to earn your favor. That we would release this sense that somehow we have to be impressive. Give us the opportunity, Lord, in our hearts to be convicted of how we stand in judgment over others who don't measure up to our standards. God, I pray that you would break our hearts. You would ruin our religion and allow us, God, to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And God, there are many here this morning who don't know you and they've been running their whole life either from you or trying to find you. And I would pray in this moment that your Holy Spirit would grab their heart with your love. That they would see that by trusting Jesus, you forgive sin regardless of how big they think their debt is. That Jesus saves sinners. That's what he came to do. God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us even when we're unfaithful and we can't wait till you come home. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up as we close with a song?